Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Monday, March 12th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We are live from the Path to Purchase Summit here, so apologies, there's going to be a lot more background noise than listeners are used to, because we're literally in this spacious exhibit hall where they're setting up and talking and everything, uh, so think of it as super high energy. Um, we're real excited. We, uh, we're here at a pre-conference all about Amazon and different strategies there. Uh, and one of the keynotes was Luke Roke. He is the senior director of U.S. Insights uh, for Walgreens and really excited to have him on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we'd like to kind of ease into this. Let's uh, start uh, with uh, kind of career path. You know, where, how did you end up in this exciting world of uh, Insights? Yeah, so after... Uh a brief tour of duty out in the West Coast where uh, I surfed and did some other things fun in my life. I went to business school and post-business school got serious and joined consulting. I worked for Deloitte Consulting in their strategy practice for about four and a half years where I focused on everything that I would consider revenue accretion. So I always tell people if you ask me to help you fix your supply chain, I'm not the right guy, but if you need growth. Uh, I was the person that you could come and talk to. Did that again for about four and a half years. And for a litany of reasons, uh, both personal and professional decided to make the jump over into uh, the industry side where I joined Walgreens. Uh, And at Walgreens, I am currently responsible for pricing for all 8,000 plus of our stores, as well as format insights. So all of the work that we do around differentiated formats, my team does the insights work related to that. And then more broadly, our value insights and value strategy. Very cool. Uh, And during your talk, you mentioned you had a brief stint at Amazon. Tell us more about that. Yeah. When I was in uh, getting my MBA uh, at Michigan, I did my internship at Amazon. So I spent a summer working in the fulfillment side helping them to build models to better predict utilization within their distribution centers, as well as uh, to look at product throughput and be able to make use predictive analytics to predict what was going to flow in and out the fastest and ensure that we were moving that as close as we could to uh, the fulfillment centers. Very cool. That sounds like a pretty meaty three-month engagement. (laughs) Yeah, it was a a fun project. And you, you get to see how Amazon operated from the inside, which some of the things that I learned back then, for example, how they run meetings, uh, I've taken with me in my career since. So six pages of typed prose, no PowerPoint? You know it. Yep. Okay. And, that uh, that can't have gone over very well at Deloitte. Um, the no PowerPoint rule? No, no. <laughs> and, and there are many days where I wish that there was a no PowerPoint rule. The funny thing, though, about uh, about Amazon is a lot of folks still used PowerPoint to create graphics and whatnot and then pasted them into their Word document. Their so PowerPoint still exists, just it's a secondary tool rather than a primary. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yep. So uh, talk you just gave today, uh, really enjoyed it, by the way. Um, but you kind of started things off with those three big strategic pillars. Um, you can test me, my, my uh, listening comprehension uh, you talked a lot about uh, assortment, um, the value loyalty program, and uh, overall omni-channel strategies. Where, uh, 
uh, can you tell us a little bit about like what listeners would have taken away from those three if they had a chance to join us today? Yeah, I mean, from a Walgreens perspective, we we are very focused on our mission is to be the the world's most loved health and beauty retailer. So we're we're spending a lot of time, energy, and effort ensuring that we've got the right products in the right stores at the right prices for our customers. A good example that I talked a lot about as a point of differentiation is the brands that we own. So people forget we're part of the Walgreens Boots Alliance. And as part of that, we're a CPG in addition to being a retailer. And we sell a lot of high-end beauty products. Number seven, I'm sure you've seen before. We don't only sell it at Walgreens. We actually sell it at Target and other retailers as well. So how do we take advantage of product differentiation that we have in those areas to plus up our stores, the right stores, to give a differentiated stuff to our customers um, again, in this marketplace in particular where convenience is continuing to feel pressure and convenience is certainly an area that we still pray, play really well, we're looking for other ways to differentiate with our customers and drive growth with the customers that we want to grow with. And uh, that one's particularly near and dear to my heart because uh, I talk a lot, like one of the most common strategies brands have against Amazon is the, what I call the owned product strategy. And I always try to differentiate that from what people call private label, because to me, private label was exact same formulation as the national brand, no marketing, customers stumble across the the uh, Walgreens brand of ibuprofen when they come looking for the Advil. Um, but it feels like more and more, all retailers are like designing differentiated products with their own formulation, their own value prop for consumers, marketing the heck out of them, and in your case, even using alternative channels of distribution in addition to your own stores. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think you mentioned ibuprofen. For us, one of the constant discussions is, you know, as a pharmacy, I think we have unique position in those areas, even on the on the pharmacy side and an OTC medicine, to have differentiation from an own brand. So we're continuing to look at that. And, and number seven and Soap and Glory and some of the beauty stuff that we've done are what I would say are the starting points for that domestically, but will continue to be a focus. And I agree with you. A lot of other retailers are using the same thing because trying to compete with Amazon and Walmart directly on price for the same product is a bit of an uphill battle. But if you can create differentiated offerings that speak specifically to the customers that you want to engage with, it could be a more viable path to growth. Cool. And then... Uh the, the title of your talk here is Start With Your Reason For Being. It's kind of an existential kind of a thing. Um, and, you know, stepping outside of, of Walgreens, you're, you're here today. You're, the, the gist of your talk was really helping people think through in today's world. It's just so, so overwhelming when you've got Walmart and Amazon and all these things happening. You, you can't beat them, either of those companies at their own game. Um, so you had some pretty good advice there. Maybe you could summarize that for us. And I'm sure every listener struggles with that. So, so it's really kind of how to think through the strategy. I, I thought that was a good, good piece. Yeah, it's almost basic. I like to call it business school blocking and tackling, but making sure that everything that you do is grounded in your corporate strategy, your customer strategy, your brand strategy, and that as you're making conscientious decisions to invest in value in certain areas, to invest in research and development in other areas, that you're doing it with an eye on overall as a company, who you are and who you want to be. Often what I see is retailers trying to compete on every single dimension, pick the dimensions with which you are differentiated and plus up on those as long as they're aligned to who you want to be and what you want to stand for. And, and we know customers, 
Um, while the way they engage with retailers continues to evolve and continues to be truly omni-channel, they do build relationships with retailers. And how do you build those relationships in a unique way that only you can do rather than just trying to build the exact same relationship that Walmart has? You know, Walmart has a very distinctive relationship with their customers and they stand for a very certain Thing. Like they stand for value. Customers know they get a great price. That's the pillar. That's the predi- what the relationship is predicated upon. Not everybody can build that relationship off price and value. So what are the dimensions that you can build a differentiated relationship with customers on? Yeah, it seems like more and more of the people that are winning against the Walmarts and Amazons um, service is, is one of them because it's hard to, you know, value is tough because scale creates value. Um, so just looking recently, uh, it's kind of fun because Amazon ends up buying a lot of these things. So like diapers.com had a better service and kind of the, kicked off the subscription Zappos, thing. Yeah. Zappos had better service with returns. Uh, one that's kind of more more current is Chewy where you know they really got to know people's pets and would write handwritten notes. And if you ever called or if you had any interaction with them, you know they knew you had a cat that was eight years old kind of a thing. And you're not going to get that from a, you know, a company like Amazon that prior guests are talking about, you know, they want more and more machines interacting with humans and less people. Um, any other examples uh, for both you guys that you can think of, of folks using those competitive levers? That Chewy one is such an interesting example um, of building a deep relationship with your customer. I saw actually an article the other day where someone had ordered food for a pet that passed away. And not only did they refund the person's cost for the food, but then at, then donated the food on behalf of the deceased animals. I think that there are ways that you can build a deep relationship like that, um, even in store. So if you think about when someone walks into a Walgreens store, uh, the beauty advisors that we have in certain areas of the store can really be helpful in, in understanding the unique needs that you have, that it's hard to understand if you can't look, touch, and feel and try the product. Um, and, and, and if you look at where some of the growth has been in beauty, for example, it's those high touch, you can come in and have a makeover done and try and touch and feel the, the product for yourself. Um, I think that that will continue to be a focal point for a lot of retailers. Best Buy, I mentioned in my presentation, is another one that is completely differentiated on service. So they'll sell you the product at a competitive price. And in most cases, they're fair priced to Amazon on the big ticket items, and then they'll make their money on the setup and make their money on the service, and they'll bring someone into your house that makes it really easy for you to install that TV and have it look great. That's an area that only Best Buy can uniquely deliver on today. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think there's tons of examples. You think of like a Stitch Fix, and it's really about customer intimacy and knowing their customers better than anyone else. Another... Um, Amazon acquisition uh, that's now like eight years ago was, uh, you know, they bought this Flash Daily Deals uh, site, Woot. And, you know, today we think of Flash as kind of a, a little bit of a joke because, you know, most of them haven't been successful. Woot is still a successful, profitable, ongoing thing that Amazon's been running for eight years. And what largely is the difference between Woot and a lot of the the now defunct Flash sales is, they really figured out who their core audience was and developed the right voice um, and curation for that audience and, and like sort of scored a, a personal relationship with a particular target segment. And so I think that, um, that notion of getting to know the customer, being the competitive differentiator, being closer to the customer and, and being able to serve that unique customer, that feels like all these other trends we talk about really roll up to that. Like, 
Yeah. yeah and, and removing friction and pain points for customers. I mean, I, I, I hate to use the old examples of Uber and Tesla, but you think about the pain points that were within those industries. Um, it might not be building an intimate relationship in those cases, but streamlining the process and streamlining the communications and taking the haggling out. There are a number of ways that folks continue to to differentiate. And I think that builds a relationship with the customer. If within that area, Uber's a great example, uh, making the transaction easier builds a relationship with the customer. It doesn't have to be a deep personalized letter to the customer. It can, there's other ways that you can reduce friction and build a relationship. Cool. And, and in your talk, you gave folks kind of a little bit of a, a roadmap for developing a strategy. Um, I don't know if you called it that, but it, there was four Ds in there, if I captured them right. Uh, maybe talk through a little bit of that. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think the first thing is just making sure you understand who you are and what you want to stand for um, and kind of defining the the objectives that you have as a company from a customer and brand perspective. And it's making sure that you develop the capabilities that you need to support those that you think about as you want to go into the market and deploy, that you've got the right operational configurations, that you've got the right tools and technologies to be able to support it. It's, it's really, I mean, it, it sounds so general and generic. I think what often happens is we get 20 years into running a business, five years into running a business, and we, get, we forget about the basics. Uh, if you have permission to play in a certain area and you have a unique proposition within that certain area, then your investment should disproportionately funnel towards that area rather than having to worry about competing with Amazon and Walmart on price, for example, on every single thing that you sell. Um, one of the topics that came up in your your t- uh, talk today was omnichannel. You mentioned uh, you have 8,000 stores in the portfolio uh, you want to talk a little bit about like where you see the stores being a true competitive advantage or differentiator? We, we have some great partnerships right now, for example, with FedEx, where uh, for folks that live in urban environments, as an example, where package theft is a real issue, being able to have your package sent to the to the, the local Walgreens and pick it up on your way home from work, quick in and out, you go to the photo desk, you grab it, and you're out. I think our location... There's, there's nobody that is closer to the customer from a physical location standpoint than Walgreens. Um, we, are, we are a five-minute walk or 10-minute drive from just about everyone in the United States. And certainly as we continue to move forward on the Rite Aid acquisition, that, will, that gap will close, close even more. So how do we continue to take advantage of, of that but, but give them a reason to come into the store with the products that we sell. So we'll, we'll continue to look for partnerships. FedEx was an example. We'll continue to look for other ways to get products to customers faster and more efficiently, but we'll also look for ways to give them a reason to come into the store and a reason for differentiation. I think, you know, I talked about this on, on, my, on my chat earlier today, but convenience has been redefined. So being close to everybody in and of itself is, is not enough anymore. Um, if you were around five to seven years ago, that wasn't the case. But now you've got Amazon Prime now delivering under two hours to you know north of 80 million people in the country. That makes it really hard um, to compete solely on convenience. So for us, that goes back to how do you differentiate, which was a big part of the, the four Ds that you mentioned. What are you differentiated on? And then what are the products and services that you can build out that will cause somebody to make that extra trip to your store? Yeah, and uh, the, I, I feel like that a lot of people talk about the sort of price, quality, and convenience trade-off. And 
it is interesting to me how the definition of all three of those is dramatically changing in the in the minds of the consumer. Um, there, I still feel like there are retailers that win on convenience. Convenience just can't mean exclusively fast delivery anymore. Um, and that that brings me to the next topic I wanted to ask you about, which is a little bit uh, grocery, right? Like, um, and in digital grocery, one of the big convenience plays is sort of list management and saving you time shopping for all those those things is uh, sort of redefining what convenience means. Um, I don't think of Walgreens as a pure grocery retailer, but I, I uh, you do have a like a core part of your assortment that overlaps. Are uh, are you guys thinking about um, sort of auto replenishment and and you know how as consumers start to embrace digital grocery that might affect the customer experience at Walgreens? Yeah, so I mean, we do we do have auto replenishment not on the grocery side, but certainly it's something that w- that we're looking into. Um, I see, and I showed a chart earlier today that showed growth trajectories kind of across health, beauty, and and food. And the reason I think everybody is going after food is it hasn't been as explosive on the growth, but it's just exploding. So it'll be something that we'll continue to look at. Again, you asked the question earlier of our, you know, around our strategic advantage in our geographic proximity. So we're always looking at are there ways to leverage that geographic proximity into categories that we already in, exist in and plus up or into adjacent categories. So groceries on the roadmap, it's something that we're looking at. There's nothing concrete that's going to market in the next month, but it's something that continues to be on the roadmap that we're looking at. Cool. Another theme you kind of wove into your, your conversation was around loyalty. Um, and it's a, uh, listeners know that Jason, uh, has the most stars of all in the Starbucks loyalty program. Uh, he probably gets 8,000 stars a day, I think is kind of where you are right now. So, uh, more or less, <laughs> plus or minus. So that's one we're all familiar with because you got to collect your stars and you get your double star days and that kind of thing. What, what do you, um, what are some of the, the spectrums of loyalty that you think about and, and is it a fool's errand or should people be investing in loyalty programs? I think loyalty as a tool to better know your customer is going to continue to be an area that folks need to invest heavily in. I mentioned earlier today, if you were wound five, seven years ago, people found it kind of creepy when they'd get personalized recommendations, personalized emails, when their Facebook feed would pop up with an item that they'd just purchased a month ago. Now, now I think by and large customers like that and expect it. And the only way that you're going to learn that deep knowledge about your customers is to incentivize them to share their information with you and to be able to capture it in a way that lets you build that personalized relationship. So I think you'll continue to see loyalty as a as a, as a vehicle that folks will double down on. And you're going to see more and more retailers using loyalty to personalize value. Some are doing it today, but I would say um, there's a lot of runway there. And even to personalize assortment. Um, so there's a ton of runway, I think, still for loyalty. And lots of different ways that folks are going at the rewards and incentive side. You know, Walgreens, we use points. Some use dollars back. Others use stars, as you mentioned. Um, there's a number of ways to get at that. I think you, you do need to figure out how your loyalty program is, going back to the points earlier, unique from other loyalty programs and gives people an incentive to sign up and participate. But yeah, loyalty, I think, as you, as you look at value as, a, as an example, I think value will continue to be based more on loyalty and personalization and less on mass, which makes loyalty programs critically important. Yeah, I'm always curious about loyalty because it, it to me it feels like there's this big paradox. Like the the folks that uh, have loyalty programs and do really well, like it, it's a huge competitive advantage, and it goes directly to that 
goal of customer intimacy that we talked about earlier. So, you, you know, certainly uh, Starbucks is very successful. I think you might have the the like highest participation loyalty yeah, program by numbers. Yeah, yeah, in all of retail. Um, so you're certainly winning there. Uh, but then there there is also like all of these sort of negative stories that like uh, consumers have loyalty fatigue and they won't carry all these these cards with them and that that you know for for the the average loyalty program isn't very effective and so I'm curious like did you guys win and a bunch of other people not win in loyalty because you you did execute better or added more value or was there something about just your core brand promise that made you more attractive to loyalty users like. How, how how do we decide who wins and doesn't in loyalty? The first thing is I think we're moving away from an environment where you need to have a card to be in a loyalty program. So I agree with you that there was fatigue around having to carry around a card. We now know based on your credit card, based on a number of other ways that you transact, who you are. And we don't necessarily need you. Um, and I think in the future, retailers aren't going to necessarily need you to type in a number to, to get your loyalty information. And you see some really interesting loyalty programs like Spring and others who will just do it all on the basis of your credit card. There is no number. You link it to your credit card, and when you use that credit card, you accrue loyalty points. So that, po- folks will take the friction out, and I think there'll be big wins for loyalty in that. The other thing I think is we, we can't think of loyalty in a, in a box, which is it's a number, a unique number assigned to you that you accrue points for. I would contend in many ways... Amazon Prime is a loyalty program. It is probably not by common definition of a loyalty program what people think of because you aren't accruing points, but there are other benefits, perks, and things that you accrue as part of that program. So part of it too will be how do you differentiate on service with your loyalty? And it might not be, the future of loyalty might not be dollars back. It might be service. It might be speed of delivery. It might be a number of other things, but it it will still be there. And I think we will pretty quickly get away from an environment where you need to remember your number and remember your login. We, we know who people are based on cookies. We know who people are based on the credit cards with which they transact. It will get a lot more frictionless. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And in fact, it's uh, Amazon absolutely, I think, is excellent at loyalty. And we sometimes lose track of like what loyalty even means. Like It doesn't mean you earn points. It means you're more loyal and have a higher customer lifetime value. Uh, one of my favorite loyalty features at Amazon is um, the dynamic cart notification. So you you put an item in, in the cart for 5 bucks. You were willing to pay $5. You put it in the cart at $5. The price drops before you check out, and Amazon messages that price change to you and gives you the the savings, right? And the they did that, like, explicitly knowing they're losing money on that transaction. That was pure gross margin they're giving up in uh, exchange for earning more trust and hopefully having more lifetime value. And so I feel like those kinds of experiences that maybe aren't even linked to points at all are, are part of the new definition of loyalty. De- definitely. And, and, and it doesn't mean you have to give the richest reward all the time or have the lowest price all the time. You just have to be there in those moments that matter for the customer and make an impression on the customer to drive and engender loyalty. Yeah, I just like having all those Starbucks stars. I usually forget to even redeem them for drinks. I went to decaf coffee a year ago, so I used to be big on the Starbucks program, but unfortunately now I don't get as much bang for the buck buying decaf. Literally and figuratively. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Well, let's change topics a little bit and talk about the 
sort of future of e-commerce. It's always interesting to me. Um, you know, you've, you've been on the consulting side of the fence where you got to work with a wide variety of different clients. Now you're in, um, uh, you're, you're an actual practitioner and you have to take responsibility for the results, which gives me a little bit of a rash to think about. Um, the, where do you think all this is going? Like if you're, if you were to put your consulting hat back on, are there, are there like particular changes, uh, that are coming down the pipe that you think, uh, everyone ought to be thinking about? It's a great question. I, you know, from my vantage point, we're, we're already we're already pretty far down the path of where I, where I I think things are going. You will see, I believe, continued blur lines between brick and mortar and digital, and and I think you're going to see, and you're seeing some of this already. Uh, an example would be more personalization where based off geolocation, you walk into a store, you get an offer that's unique to you for that very specific moment in time. You'll continue to see folks try to play on how do I use location and behavior to drive uh, digital engagement. That will be a way that I think we'll, we'll continue to see plussed up. But you know, mobile isn't going anywhere uh, Online isn't going anywhere. I think brick and mortar will still play its role, but the lines between them will continue to blur. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to touch on the mobile for a second because that's another one where uh, the stats are overwhelming. Like, Overwhelmingly favorable to mobile apps. Like when you use mobile apps, um, there's much higher spending, much better mobile conversion. All these good things happen. Comma, um, it's really hard to get users to use your mobile app. So the overwhelming majority of retailers that have a mobile app, like it doesn't get downloaded or it only gets used once. And so it feels like another one of these paradoxes. If you can get it, it's really powerful. Um, but for a lot of people, it's not a good good play. Um, and, and once again, you guys are on the side of like having a lot of, of uh, loyal app users. Do you, like, do you think that's going to continue to be a, um, a thing where the biggest retailers are going to have the apps and everyone else is going to fail? Do you see any like blending of the web and app experiences? I think some folks will back away from apps and just invest in pure mobile. Um, the only way that you're going to drive adoption of an app is is if you have a differentiated offer within the application. So for us, we've got scan, refill by scan within our app. So for all of our pharmacy customers, you pull up an app, you scan your prescription, a couple clicks, you're ready to go pick it up at the store. That's unique to the app. That would be hard for us to duplicate on even a mobile website. If you don't have things like that, I think you'll you'll see more and more folks say, I'm not going to invest in having an app. People are, I'm going to invest that in my mobile web infrastructure, which is where really the purchase funnel is going to flow through. So I do think you'll see traditional brick and mortar retailers who don't have a point of differentiation within their app continue to de-invest in apps and funnel all of that investment towards mobile, just not from an application basis. One follow-up on future of e-commerce. So so you sit um, and you you talked about doing pricing and you guys have 8,000 stores and I don't know how many SKUs, but that's a big matrix of things to price. Um, Jason talks a lot about AI and machine learning. Do you think some point a machine will do your job effectively or, or do you think that, uh, there's just a lot of hype around that and, and you still need that human touch? You, I think you always need, everything's a bit, bit of art and science, but I do believe, and, and we have tools and most, if not all retailers have tools that I would say border on artificial intelligence already, machine-based learning tools that help, help, the, help those companies make better decisions. Yes, I think you'll continue to see 
a scaling down of the number of people required to, to your question to execute pricing, for example, but you'll always need the art to layer on, on top of the science. And I, from a value perspective, I don't foresee a scenario where, where we fully replace the human element with artificial intelligence. Where I do think you'll see artificial intelligence play a bigger role is things like hyper-localization, where we may say for a set of items across our stores, we're going to let the machines manage it because we know that we can drive a lot of efficiency out of pricing that in a differentiated way across these stores and doing that on our own will cost way too much labor to do it. So I think you'll see people plus up on on AI in in examples like that, like how do you Mm hyper-localize? But at a macro level, you still need the human touch and you still need the years of insights and merchandising to be able to to set the broader strategy and make the bigger pricing and value decisions. Cool. Awesome. Uh, We're running up on time. So uh, one last question I wanted to uh, squeeze in there. Um, Going back to Omnichannel for a second, you mentioned part of your scope was um, customer insights and data. Uh, I've always had this perception that Traditional brick and mortar grew up without a lot of data. Like there's point of sale data, sales data, uh, very little data about customer behavior in the store. And then digital shopping grew up with highly instrumented granular data about those consumer behaviors. So, you know, the digital marketers agonizing over things like conversion rate. Most brick and mortar retailers, you talk to them about their store conversion rate and they, they, they would look at you with a, a blank expression. Um, we're now in an era when it is totally possible to collect all kinds of really insightful data about consumer behavior in the store. Are you starting to see the business users take advantage of that and behave differently, or are, we, or, are most brick-and-mortar guys still stuck in the sort of old paradigm? Yes, I think people are starting to behave differently and take advantage of that. And because we now can trace a customer all the way through their journey from when they look at Walgreens on their mobile to when they actually walk into the store and they ultimately make a purchase, I think it's impossible and foolish to not look at that data to make better decisions. And as you figure out you know, how you want to cluster your assortment, how you want to set your stores, being able to understand the consumer behavior that drives those decisions, I would say all retailers, all big successful retailers are using data now in store the same way that data was used and has been used from the last five years online. And a lot of that is, again, the technologies that we now have to understand customer behavior through things like credit cards, through things like website cookies, etc. Being able to trace that through, you don't have to Back to your questions earlier on loyalty, you have to have someone enter in and punch in their code to know what they're doing and how they're shopping. There are other ways to get at that. And, and that will, I think, allow people to use that information to make better decisions. And businesses are doing that. Very cool. Um, well, that's encouraging for the future. And that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, but, Luke, uh, super grateful to you for taking the time to sit down with us today and sharing the POV. Um, if folks have questions or want to continue the conversation, they're welcome to jump on our Facebook page and uh, we'll continue it there. As always, if you enjoyed this show, we sure appreciate you jumping on iTunes and giving us that five-star review. Thanks for joining us, Luke. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.